turn, if you will, again to Luke chapter 8. It's a long chapter, and we're still moving through it. Specifically, uh, verses 26 to 39, we'll see if we get that far. Uh, Fascinating passage again, but... um, I wanted to uh, remind us all of, of where, where we are in Luke and what we've been through and what is continuing. These, these things have a purpose. All of these events have a purpose. Um, back in chapter 7, verse 16, uh, when Jesus had raised the widow's son, uh, verse 16 says, fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. In chapter 7, verse 49, when he forgives the sins of the woman in the Pharisee's house, uh, the, the verse, Who is this who even forgives sins? And then in verse 25 of chapter 8, after he has stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. So if you notice, there's a, um, a building a crescendo that's going through these, uh, these chapters, and indeed I would argue that in the Gospels it never stops. Uh, the wave crashes on the shore, if you will, at the cross, and the empty tomb and the exaltation, the, the uh, rising of Jesus uh, to uh, his heavenly Father, uh, but what is going on here is an underscoring of the authority of Jesus, in particular for these twelve men who are with him. He's just chosen these these men, and of course, there uh, there's no way they would possibly understand the mission they're going to be given. But uh, Jesus is going to take them for a period of about three years and work with them and allow them to see him uh, doing various things. So today we come to another episode. Uh, last week, uh, this, by the way, is a, is a terrible rendition of, of a, a bit of, of Israel. Uh, this would be the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, the Dead Sea down here. I've, I've mentioned the topography a few times. This little <laughs> circle is where Jerusalem would be. Uh, and we'll get to the rest of... Israel has an interesting little seacoast there that has one little irregularity in it. That's where the port of Haifa is, the fifth largest seaport on the Mediterranean. A very, very large area. You get on down here to the Sinai Peninsula and so forth and so on. But this is going to be where we're situated. He's, he's just come across this little Sea of Galilee. Again, 13 miles north to south. Uh, five, six miles east to west, a very small uh, sea, often called, even in scripture, a lake. And uh, he's had that, that incredible uh, event on that, uh, on that body of water with these disciples, who many of whom were fishermen, who yet were in peril for their lives. And Jesus came in and calmed the water. They got into a boat on the Israeli side of the Sea of Galilee, in order to go to the other side. Now, when we hear go to the other side, we think, well, that's, that's not that big a deal. That is an enormous event. 
that is happening here in Luke chapter eight, because this side of the Jordan River is Gentile. Uh, Jews didn't go over to this side. If you go over to this side, you're unclean. It's like uh, the Samaritans. If you went to Samaria, uh, which would be roughly in here where the West Bank area is today, um, <clears throat> you just didn't go there. That, that was what was so extraordinary in the Gospel of John when Jesus walks through Samaria and he goes to the woman of Samaria, he goes to the woman at the well. Uh, by that, he would have been unclean under normal Jewish law, but Jesus, of course, isn't concerned with normal Jewish law. Uh, so that's what we're doing today, and it's a very, very unique and unusual event that the disciples would would be taking note of. So we'll look at first verses 26 to 33 to see what happens when he crosses the lake. They've had the storm. He's calmed it by the end of verse 25. Uh, and they say, goodness, who, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Then beginning in verse 26, I'll read through verse 33. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Very uh, singular event uh, of, of uh, taking taking place here. And the first thing we run into that needs a bit of explanation, it says in verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Now in this, this episode, as we are beginning to see routinely, uh, is written also in the gospels of Matthew and Mark. And you'll see other words listed in those particular gospels. And you note uh, here in the ESV, there's a footnote after Gerasenes uh, that says uh, Gerasenes or Gadarenes, which is opposite to Galilee. Now, it, it, uh, if you go to, uh, we'll just turn to, the, to uh, the Gospel of Mark. It's also in Matthew, but if you go to Mark chapter 5, verse 20, uh, you read this under the section of uh, Jesus heals a man with a demon. Verse 20 in Mark says, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. If you go to chapter seven of Mark, uh, verse 31, where he's feeding the 5,000, it says, and he said to them, 
think I'm in, no, that's in six. Uh, Chapter seven, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So you're running into a couple of of, uh, geographic pointers here, Gadarenes, Gerasenes, and Decapolis. Uh, That's why I wanted a a board. And again, next week, perhaps I can uh, do it more justice. But um, the Decapolis was a very vague area, something like that. East of the Jordan River, east of the Sea of Galilee, Gentile area. Decapolis means ten cities. Decapolis, ten cities. The northern and southern range of them today would be the city of Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. The southern range would be Amman, which is the capital of Jordan. And you had eight other cities in here that with Damascus and Amman, they weren't called that back in those days, would constitute the Decapolis, the area of the Decapolis. Two of those cities, two of those other 10 cities, are Gadara and Gerasa. That's where you get the word Gerasene or Gadarene. People from those two towns, those two towns are right about here and here. Uh, neither one of those is going to fit the narrative because Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee and when, he, when the demons go into the herd of pigs, they, they go down the slope into the sea and drown. This is the sea they're talking about. Uh, so we will uh, continue here, but the main point to understand about this is, again, it's a Gentile area. Uh, east of, of the Sea of Galilee and most If you go to Israel today, I put it this way, if you go to Israel today, uh, they will place this event right where this star is. Place called Kersey. There's a national park there, national park in Israel, in Kersey. And there's the ruin of a a synagogue slash chapel that you can see there in Kersey. And it's it's located on the Sea of Galilee. The slopes, uh, as we mentioned last week, the slopes up here go up to 2,000 feet. I go down into, into the sea, so it's, it's the perfect uh, spot for it. And that's where you will be told this event happened. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, frankly, that important, nor do I think that everybody knows where all of these events happen. If you wander through Israel today, uh, which is a fascinating journey, uh, you'll be told a whole lot of things uh, here in Jerusalem. Well, I don't want to get lost in this. I, I love maps. I, I would, uh, you, you've got to protect me from myself here. Uh, but I will say this. There is one other important issue here. In 1967, Israel, you and I have grown up with a concept of Israel as a geopolitical country on the surface of the earth. There was 2,000 years between what we're reading in Luke chapter 8 and the existence of a geopolitical Israel. That didn't occur again until 1948. Uh, And I'd love to get into how Harry Truman was snockered, frankly, by Deuteronomy chapter 1, but that's another story. Uh, But in 1967, Israel, of the many wars Israel's had since 1948, 
The most preeminent was called the Six-Day War. Uh, Itzhak Rabin was given the privilege of naming that war after they had won it. And he called it the Six-Day War because he's, he wanted to model it after the six days of creation. He said this, this war uh, were, were, there was six days of, of duration that created Israel. Well, Israel had already been created 19 years, uh, but what they did in the Six-Day War was to take the area of the Sinai down here, uh, the West Bank, which is roughly right in there, and a very, very important region that they call the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights would have included Kersey. The reason the Israels took uh, Israelis took that region is because it was part of Syria, and Syria had a habit of lobbing artillery shells randomly into all of the Israeli towns that resided around the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias, big, big city, a very large city uh, today, and and they would get rocket attacks at random. I mean, imagine if if every day about six artillery rounds or rocket rounds or drone attacks just hit around Main Street, Greenville. Uh, how safe would you feel? Not very safe. So they took all of this ground uh, in order to, to move any kind of potential strikes far enough away. Uh, the whole world is still mad at Israel for doing this. The world does not acknowledge this territory as being Israel. Israel says, a pox on your house. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Israel. Trust us. And we're not giving it up. So if you go to Kersey today, what you'll have to be, be careful of. Uh, we, were, we had a, a strange tour guide at one point that took us all the way around the Sea of Galilee, which meant driving through uh, some United Nations uh, zones. And you don't wander too far when you get over into this green-shaded area because there are a lot of, of landmines. And you have all, a, lot, a lot of signs and barbed wire saying, uh, you know, go beyond this point and uh, good luck. Uh, so it's a fascinating area, very, very significant area still today, in fact, indeed, especially today, uh, that, um, that we're going to here in this Kersey area, uh, Golan Heights. Golan, by the way, comes from uh, the, the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Golan was one of the cities that was a city of refuge. Okay, <clears throat> verse 27 Jesus leaves the boat. They get to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus leaves the boat uh, and meets, quote, a man from the city who had demons. He wore no clothing. He lived among the tombs. Again, easy to read through that and, and miss a couple of important uh, concepts. The man was from the city. Uh, this man at one point lived in somebody's house. He grew up in someone's house. He was someone's son, uh, perhaps someone's father, perhaps someone's husband. In other words, it's, when we get to stories like this, we tend to uh, isolate this man because he was uh, full of demons and we forget the fact that he was a human. Remember that this, uh, this man uh, was very much human. If you go to these parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, you, you add a few other things. He was a fierce man. Uh, no one could shackle him. He cried out at night. 
he cut himself and bruised himself with stones. Those facts come in again from, from the context of Matthew and, and Mark. Uh, all the people in the area called him mad. We would probably do that today. We, we have, uh, it, it's a fascinating discussion going on in the United States now, and it has been for several decades, uh, the, the sort of psychologizing of the American culture uh, is, uh, wants to label people sick as opposed to sinful or um, responsible. It's an interesting transition. But nonetheless, this man certainly would qualify uh, for being very unusual. Now, the Talmud had very specific descriptions of someone they thought would be classified accurately as being mad or insane, perhaps. One of them was he walked, he or she walked abroad at night rather than going home to a house. Number two, spending the night on or in a grave. Uh, madness and death have always been associated. It, it, there's no... There's no secret why Mary Shelley and, and the people who write uh, books, uh, you know, Frankenstein and, and Dracula and all these kinds of, of stories, uh, death, graves are always a very significant part in it. it was, it's always considered uh, to be an aspect of madness. Uh, tearing one's clothing was a third Talmud description of a mad person. Destroying what one is given is another description. Now, again, we read all of these things. We say, what a horrible, horrible thing uh, Jesus has come into contact with here and this man who is, is uh, mad and sees him. The, the man is naked, he's alone, he's antisocial, he's isolated, he's dangerous, he's violent, he's insane, he's walking among the dead. And I would suggest to you that is just like every human on the planet. That's why I say don't lose sight of the fact Yes, this man is, uh, he, he comes at us in scripture in a very unique way and, and we tend to uh, almost treat him and, and read of him as if he's not human. I would suggest to you he is exactly human. Every one of us is dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, every person who does not know Jesus heads toward the grave rather than toward the light. Um, our sins do what to us? They isolate us. They alienate us. Uh, and in fact, we are dead without Jesus Christ. Paul's uh, words in Ephesians uh, are to be taken literally. Uh, when he says we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we're not just gimpy. We're not just uh, uh, a little bit short of perfect. Uh, our sins have killed us. We are, until we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are dead, incapable of reacting until uh, God does the reacting for us. Now, when we get to verse 28, uh, so uh, what I'm saying is see this man as, as perhaps not so bizarre and atypical. Certainly he has bizarre behavior, uh, but... Uh, realize that this is, uh, this is a human and indeed uh, perhaps a neighbor, perhaps a family member uh, of our own today. Uh, indeed, perhaps we remember when we ourselves 
uh, were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, verse 28 says, when he, now I want you to start looking at the pronouns. The pronouns are very controversial. If you read uh, various commentaries, uh, nobody is, is certain. You'll, you'll, 50% of them say that when you see he, verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out. Now, is that the man crying out or is it a demon crying out from within the man? Half the commentaries will say it's the man. The other half will say it's the demons. Uh, frankly, uh, most of uh, the evidence, in, in my opinion, would point toward the demon. Uh, but again, not that relevant, really, in a, in a sense. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Well, why is he crying out uh, like this? Either the man or the demon. Verse 29, for he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So apparently Jesus had already uh, commanded these demons to come out of this man. That's why verse 28, uh, the man slash the demons in the man are crying out, what have you to do with me? I beg you, do not torment me. Uh, Jesus had already commanded it. But the important thing to read from that is the fact that the demonic forces know Jesus and who he is. They're not in any kind of, of quandary. As we've seen moving through chapter seven, moving through, really moving uh, through all the gospels as you begin them, the people don't know who, who this person Jesus is. He, they may be, if they live near uh, Nazareth or in Nazareth, they they will wait a minute. You're Joseph's son, aren't you? I, you, uh, you made me that uh, that uh, wonderful whatever uh, trinket in your carpentry shop. I, I don't understand this. Uh, not so with the demonic forces. Demonic forces know exactly who Jesus is and who he is. Uh, they are confronting. Uh, if you look at Matthew chapter eight verse twenty nine, you don't have to to turn there. Uh, have you come here to torment us before the time? That's, an, that's something that Matthew uh, brings out that Luke does not. Before what time? Uh, again, the demons understand. They know that there is a time coming, a, a judgment coming. Uh, they know absolutely with crystal clarity that their doom is certain. And it's coming, that coming we know as, as a second coming, as, as a final judgment. Uh, but uh, the demons are under no, um, they don't have to be, they're, they're not sitting there wondering who this guy is that just uh, came, up, came ashore here. Verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Verse 31, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Again, that, that the demons are certain of, of where they're headed and what their final destination is going to be. Uh, but note to them that the authority of Jesus is an absolute given. 
Jesus comes walking up and even though there's many, many of these, of these demons in this man, uh, they are cowering and they know what the end point of all of this is going to be. Uh, so the authority of Jesus is unquestioned for the, ironically among the demons. It's the people who have the problem and the people are going to constantly have all the way up, uh, you know, for, whether it's Pontius Pilate, whether it's Herod, whether, uh, you know, who is this man? We keep seeing that over and over verses after all of these episodes. Who is this that's doing these things? That is not a problem with, with the uh, demonic uh, realm. Verse 32, now there's a large herd of pigs feeding there on the hillside. That's another indication that this is Gentile country. Uh, the Jews aren't gonna have a large herd of pigs anywhere, but there's a large herd of pigs uh, feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these, they being the demons. Uh, rather than annihilate us, why don't you let us just enter these pigs over here? And he gave them permission. Notice that Jesus is, is giving the demons permission to do this. He, it, Jesus is, is always completely in charge of every scenario. In the Gospel of Mark, by the way, he mentions 2,000 pigs. Uh, so Legion, uh, there were, the, the, this man had a whole lot of, of uh, bad things going on uh, within his, his being. Verse 33, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake and drowned. So uh, somewhere in this area, purportedly, it's certainly someplace on the east coast of the Sea of Galilee. This event takes place and the, and the pigs, once the demons are in the pigs, the pigs go down, they all drown in the Sea of Galilee. Now, <clears throat> What's going on here? What, what, uh, what do you see reflected in the behavior of this man uh, in the larger picture? What are Satan and his minions, his uh, brother angels, uh, what are they about? In other words, what is sin doing to you and to me? What does it do, whether we're Christian or not? Sin and Satan seek to destroy the image of God that we are created within. All the way back to Genesis chapter one, this fascinating three verses, verses 26, seven, and eight of Genesis one. That's where God says, we're gonna make man in our image. Nothing else is made in the image of God, but mankind, male, female, are made in the image of God. And you can, books, uh, many, many books have been written on what that means. It is a dramatic reality about humankind. Among other things, it translates into Romans chapter one. Uh, Romans chapter one, verse 18, where, where Paul says, uh, you, you're misbehaving in sin because you are suppressing the truth. In other words, every, every human being who is born has the truth of God, has the image of God embedded, uh, indeed crafted into him or her. And in order for me to elude it or run from it, I have got to be volitional. I've got to suppress that truth that that image creates in me. And we do that. Uh, the rest of, of Romans 1, verse 18 is the beginning, goes all the way to verse 32 about the description of how that suppression leads to deeper and deeper and deeper sin 
uh, it's, a, it's worth uh, looking at from time to time. But that's what Satan, that's what these demons are doing. And that's what this man is so wonderfully illustrative of. What happens when you give yourself over to sinfulness is you start to unravel. Uh, you, you start to, to have this, this thing that, that uh, is the image of God uh, destroyed, distorted, dominated, whatever. And that's exactly why the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit, when we're given a, a heart of flesh, God takes out the heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, gives us a heart of flesh. Then the Holy Spirit liberates, frees, dignifies, brings life to the situation. And this, again, this, this man uh, is, is so wonderfully, uh, he's, he's just a signboard for what sin will do. And if you're a Christian, we, we, we don't lose sin just, just because we become believers. We're not uh, free of sin. We're free of the guilt of sin. We're free of the punishment of sin, but besetting sins, uh, domineering sins will still be a part of us that we are called then to fight uh, for the rest of our lives. But this, this notion of what this man is filled with these demons versus what a Christian will be, and indeed what this man will be in short order, uh, is the difference between dissolution, destruction, uh, death, wanting to, to and, and in fact, sleeping and hanging out at night in, in cemeteries, as opposed to being filled with light of the Holy Spirit and, and being, being useful and winsome uh, to the universe. Uh, the demons are destroying the pigs. I have which, a question there. You know uh -huh. the demons weren't destroyed, so, so if the pigs are all dead, where do the demons go tonight? I have no idea. <laughs> I hope they can swim, I, I guess. Uh, actually, I don't hope they, they can swim. Uh, but no, Jesus does not destroy the demons at this point. Uh, you and I are going to be facing demons until Jesus comes back. Uh, the, interestingly, some commentaries will go to the fact that this is another illustration of how animals had to die in order to save men, uh, men, mankind. Uh, similar to, to going back to Genesis 1, when Adam and Eve sinned, God clothed them with the skins of animals. So animals died then in order for God to clothe uh, the animals. Of course, all of it leading through the, the entire sacrificial system of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And of course, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus himself on the cross. Uh, point being that the removal of sin is always costly. It's going to cost the Son of God his, his life uh, in an ignominious fashion on a cross. Now, I want to uh, dwell a little bit further on this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've read this book. Most people I run into seem to know something about it. It is a fascinating insight into what we're talking about. Uh, I would love to read just the first words of it, but I don't have time, but I suggest it. If you want the best biblical insight into demonic action in the world today, it is a book by David Powlison called Power Encounters. If you're curious about, uh, you, you turn on television, what you, you see exorcisms or movies about it, all this kind of stuff. 
Um, David Powlison has the most biblically insightful book. I, every book, frankly, that David wrote was like that, but it's called Power Encounters. If you can get your hands on it, it's not easily obtainable now. Uh, unfortunately, it should be, but, uh, but that, that treats this, not, this notion biblically. And I'm going to go through some of what uh, Powlison says here. Uh, because we desperately need to regain biblical truth about waging spiritual warfare. Uh, Lewis opens in his in the uh, introduction or forward or, or prologue or something of, of screw tape by by saying we got two problems out there. It, it, this is this is a, a big devil talking to a little devil. That's what the screw tape letters are, and he's and he's giving them uh, the big devil is giving the little devil instructions about how you deal with these crazy Christians. Uh, and he opens by saying there's two problems with these Christians. They either put too much emphasis on what we're doing or they put none on what we're doing. That, that Lewis hit the nail on the head. That is the problem in 21st century America and in the world. We either think there's a, there's a devil hiding behind every tree and we're so scared that we don't want to go out in the front yard or we think, ah, oh, it's just a myth. And we ignore the reality of Satan. Satan is real. He is an angel. He is a created being. He is not equal to God. Uh, he does not have power that God does not give him. Uh, that's what's so good about Pallison's book. Here's a quote from Pallison. The human tendency toward willing slavery has never had a more diverse supermarket of options. What's he talking about? He's talking about alcohol, gambling, Cigarettes, drugs, immorality, violence, food, work, TV, exercise, money, sports, power, on and on and on. The, the world in which you and I live is tailor-made for Satan. It's, it's, and, it, and technology brings it to us in powerful, powerful packages. So becoming addicted to all of these things, any or all of these things, uh, is is an issue that, that, frankly, virtually everybody is dealing with. Uh, here's another issue. Movies and books are increasingly focusing on the demonic. Therefore, Christians are more and more fearful of demon possession or wondering how do I, can I be exercised of demons. Now, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible never, ever goes there. I... Think of uh, the opening of the ninth chapter of John. That's, that's when uh, the man born blind uh, is on the scene and, and all of the people and the Pharisees and everybody come in and say, wonder what sin he did to be born blind. And Jesus said he didn't do any sin. He's born blind because I, I made him blind from birth in order to show my authority. Uh, so don't, the problem we have is we connect strange things that happen to people, sinful things that happen to people, we immediately say, ah, must not be a Christian, must be, uh, must be of the devil. Uh, no, no, here's what the Bible does. The Old Testament and the New Testament reveals Satan all through it, but always under the authority of God. You think of Job. Uh, Satan comes to God and says, you know, yeah, that guy's real good now, but if you you know, you let me have him a few weeks and he won't be so good. And God says, all right, uh, go ahead, mess with Job. But here's what I'm going to fence you in. But you can do this, 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 but nothing else with this. 
Always God in authority over Satan. When you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all the way through the, the book of Acts, Jesus and his disciples are casting out demons always to reveal the authority of Jesus. After that, there are no more casting out of demons in the rest of the New Testament. No more demon possession in the rest of the New Testament. Instead of that, what you see are passages like Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, put on the armor of God, resist. First uh, Peter 5, 5 to 11, another wonderful passage. Uh, resist in the midst of, of suffering, resist in the face of lies. James chapter three, verses 13 through chapter four, verses 12, big passage there. Resist in the presence of the flesh. That's what the New Testament, that's what the scriptures teach. Uh, don't, don't frankly uh, use Satan as an excuse for your behavior. You and I have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We have God within us. He is more powerful. He is in authority over Satan. And frankly, to run around fearful of Satan and the demonic, we need to acknowledge it. It is a very real, Satan exists. He's going to be dealt with at the, at the uh, second coming, just like uh, every other sinner is. Uh, but Satan is not so powerful that you as a Christian need to fear him. You need to be uh, humbly and soberly mindful of giving yourself over to him. That's what sin does. Just like this demonic, it's, it starts us to unravel in places and in ways that go toward rather towards Satan rather than away um, from him. What does biblical spiritual warfare look like? And Paulus's book is so excellent in this. It looks like repentance and faith. Nothing that, that uh, sometimes we look at that. We look at repentance and faith, repenting of my sin, trying to, to bring my faith to bear and grow that faith. We think, boy, those are, those are, that's a pea shooter. I'm up against an army of demons and you give me a pea shooter. Repentance and faith is not a pea shooter. Repentance and faith wins, carries the field against Satan always. Uh, action, in other words, before Paul got to chapter six in Ephesians, he gave uh, what I think of as a hamburger verse, a uh, hamburger passage in, a, in uh, chapter five, Ephesians 5, 22, 23, 24. Put off, put on. 22 is put off, 24 is put on. But you don't just get rid of your sins and, and put on something marvelous. 23, the, the, the meat of the hamburger. Verse 23 says, by getting back into the word. Put off your sin, get back into the word in order to replace it with what you need to put on with what, uh, what you need for that particular behavior or whatever it is. Uh, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, he defeats Satan every single time. How? By the word of the living God. Scripture, this book, defeats Satan every single time. Power for the Christian. How does, how does power for the Christian uh, come to us, enabling us to overpower Satan? This book. This book. Last week, Jesus is in the boat 
And it's a very comforting passage, that passage of when he's on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, because as we mentioned last week, everything you and I will go through, every deep valley, every hurtful experience, every painful realization that we are sinners, deep, deep, flawed sinners, saved only by the grace of God through the blood of his son. In all of those episodes, in all of those events from life to death, Jesus is in the boat with you. But what happens in this passage, and I don't uh, have time to even finish reading this passage. If you read through uh, verse 34 to 39, uh, Jesus drives all the demons out of this man. This man then, then moves toward Jesus and says, let me go with you from this moment forward. I don't want to leave your side. Jesus says, no, I want you to stay here and speak of me. Go back to your hometown. The people, the people are going to be pretty shocked. You go back to your hometown and you tell them, what, what you've seen here today. You tell them where authority resides. You tell them where truth resides. You tell them where hope resides. And it's in my name, in Jesus Christ. The town people who came out and, and watched this event, all of these Gentiles, all of these uh, garrisons, they say, oh, we don't want anything to do with you. We want you to leave. You're scaring us. We don't understand. So rather than receive Jesus by faith, <laughs> They say, there's the door, Jesus. There's the lake. And he does it. He and his disciples get in his boat. Uh, verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Verse 40, now when Jesus returned, returned back over here. So Jesus is, is going to leave him. He's going to say, okay. Sometimes, and, and we don't ever know how much how much availability we have when we hear Jesus, when we're moved by Jesus. If you know an unbeliever, and I've, I'm sure we've all met, met so many people like this who say, I've got a whole lifetime to come to Jesus. I've got some wild oats I want to sow first. Uh, let me live the life I want to live. Then I'll get serious about Jesus. You don't know that you've even got to the next morning. He may come that night for you there. Of course, we'll get to them in Luke later where Jesus presses that point. But the issue is, if you push Jesus off long enough, he may get in the boat and leave without you. So in order for you to be in the boat with Jesus, you, can't, you do what this demonic did, uh, this now cleansed demonic, this now Christian man who goes to Jesus and he embraces everything Jesus has. And you do that through this word. You start growing from this book and you never, ever stop because in this book, allied to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, which he gives me on the plan of salvation that God has set for me. I have the power over any demon that ever comes into my life. I'm not saying it's always simple. I'm not saying we won't fall and falter, go through any number of sins or whatever. Uh, but through Jesus, we have the authority and the power to conquer and live humbly before him in a way that brings honor and glory to his name. Let's pray. Father, uh, these, uh, these episodes are so, there's just so much going on in all of them. And we do pray from this particular individual, this man, that is so awful to contemplate meeting a person like this. And yet we meet them all the time on the street. Uh, we don't, they don't usually show themselves to quite this degree, but we meet them all the time. And if we're honest with ourselves, 
when those besetting sins come along and we struggle and we fall to them yet again, we remind ourselves of this man. We are not this man. When we have been saved by Jesus Christ, we are saved, even though we may continue to sin, indeed will continue to sin. Father, help us in those times especially to know that there is power through the word of truth that you have given us. And when we simply repent of our sin and place again our faith in you, you fight for us. Your son did all the fighting when he went to that cross. He died for my sins, my past sins, the sins I will commit today, and all the sins I will commit until I am in your presence. Father, help us to see the power that is in Jesus Christ in the Christian faith of faith and repentance and sanctifying work going forward. You will persevere us. You will bring us into your kingdom forever. We want to be in that boat. We want to stay in that boat with you forever. And we thank you that we have that assurance as believers in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.